I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Let me go to the controversy section of Nora Ephron's Wikipedia page. Well, actually, there is none. I see no controversy section. Okay. Great. Unproblematic queen. Welcome to Like a Virgin, the show where we give yesterday's pop culture today's takes. I'm Rose Domnu. And I'm Fran Dorado. And we hope you had a lovely Valentine's Day, Galentine's Day, however you celebrated. Um, We are jumping right into things this week. No news. um, Because, you know, we were too busy, I don't know, sucking and fucking and eating chocolate or whatever. (laughs) Those are the things that people do on Valentine's Day, right? They suck and fuck and eat chocolate. Yeah, exactly. And watch the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy in its entirety, which is what we covered last year for Valentine's Day. So go back and listen to those episodes if you are feeling spicy. But this week, we are also talking about, you know, someone who is very prolific when it came to romance, but from a slightly different perspective. Slightly. This week we're talking all about Nora Ephron, the prolific writer-director of such films as When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, Julie and Julia, and... Queen of the rom-com. Queen of the rom-com, and as Fran just learned, and as I learned 10 minutes before that from looking at her Wikipedia, she also (laughs) co-wrote Silkwood, which neither of us have seen. Neither of us has have seen, despite me being a devout Cher stan. Um, I've heard it's actually good, and Cher plays a lesbian. There was also a really great documentary about Nora Ephron um, on HBO a couple years ago called Everything is Copy, which I did watch but don't remember a lot of. Fran, <laughs> you, you have claimed that you remember more of it. So do you want to start off by giving a, a little context about who Nora Ephron was? 
Sure. So Nora Ephron is, you know, one of the better Nepo babies in our Nepo baby cinematic universe. Her parents were screenwriters and she, I think, pretty quickly got into making films um, after having a extremely prolific career as a magazine writer, essentially. So her work as an essayist was like immediately profound, recognizable, something that everyone saw after. Um, And she did it by simply like kind of captivating the world with her own voice. And I think you see a Nora Ephron voice in her movies, right? It's very like conversational. It's from the first person perspective. It's like blunt and funny and sometimes mean. And I think like sooner rather than later, as she sort of took up this residency at Esquire at a time when... There weren't very many, like, women writing for magazines, let alone for Esquire. She kind of just became this, like, thought leader, like, a a, a kind of socialite thought leader, like, um, if not intellectual, that people were were looking for and, like, looking toward to, like, cultivate the culture. Like, she was kind of famous while she was alive. Um, she was obviously. the Gia Tolentino of her time. She was. She kind of. <laughs> she kind of was. And it's funny. Like I actually, you know, I haven't read like a ton of Nora Ephron's essays. I didn't buy like a compilation of her work when she died or things like that. I I actually only know her from her movies. And I think that I personally didn't know the life that she had outside of movies. Right. Um, it's also so romantic, Rose. Like. Uh, so romantic compared to, like, our experience in, in magazines. Like, you know, Nora Ephron was writing alongside, like, Gay Talese and, like, that old school generation of writers when, like, they would get paid thousands and thousands of dollars to write one story. Oh, totally. That, yeah. And that one story, they would have, like, three months to finish. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, this like, was a different... This was sort of closer to Carrie Bradshaw's type of journalism. Yeah, where, where you could have a, a weekly column that kept you in Manolo Blahniks and (laughs) Nora Ephron had an even more idyllic version of that going on. Not like us where we were writing, you know, like clickbait about JVN's nail polish. Yeah. No, no health insurance, freelancing, begging, begging editors to give us like $250 to write like a 4,000 word essay. Um, that's due in two days. Um, yeah, it's, it's really definitely a a more romantic version of like what it meant to be a writer before the internet age. Um, Yeah, but those are kind of, I think, the background things that are important to know um, as she kind of went into her film career and became, like, the filmmaker Nora Ephron as opposed to just the the writer Nora Ephron. Um, What about Nora Ephron, I guess? Like, do you have, like, a favorite movie of hers? Yes, and I have argued about this with with my mother fairly recently. I Mm -hmm. do think... So, according to my mom, she thinks When Harry Met Sally is the best romantic comedy ever made and (laughs) I slightly disagree with that and I think that of her movies You've Got Mail is definitely my favorite and part of the reason why I am drawn to that as opposed to When Harry Met Sally even though I love When Harry Met Sally it's a fantastic movie but When Harry Met Sally, Nora Ephron wrote it, but she didn't direct it. And she wrote and directed You've Got Mail 
because she di- she didn't make her directorial debut until 1992 with This Is My Life. And then, for the most part, she directed all of her movies. And she co-wrote most of her films with her sister, Delia Efron. Um, but I think, like, obviously, it, it does kind of make sense that when Harry Met Sally is written by a woman, directed by a man, because, like, literally the basis of the film is this question of can men and women ever really be friends? But... I definitely prefer later in her career when Nora Ephron was writing and directing all of her films because they feel so much more her vision in totality. Um, and I think that's what I respond to. And I do think You've Got Mailed is just a perfect romantic comedy. I agree. I I, I honestly wish I had rank, like thought to like rank the Nora Ephron movies that I had seen, but I'm pretty sure... That that is my favorite, too. I love When Harry Met Sally. I think, like, it is something... It's a movie that, like, sweeps you off your feet in a way that her other films don't. But It's, I, a fan, it's an amazing... Well, bo- both it and You've Got Mail are amazing New York movies. Yeah, they are. They're love letters to New York. And, like, Nora Ephron was a kind of classic New Yorker. Like, even her writing style, like sounds like New York. Like, her literal voice, the infectiousness of her voice, like, sounds like what New York sounds like. Is that corny to say? No, I think it's true. When Harry Met Sally also has this quality that's, like, I think if you simplified it, like, it could be a play. It could be a play about these two couples because it is kind of about, you know, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal and then Carrie Fisher and whoever... The guy is that she ends up dating. There is something um, like theatrical about it, but then obviously, like it's a much bigger story than that. I I rewatched it last year because I was watching a lot of rom coms last summer, and it's it's such a great movie. And like obviously, the thing everyone remembers from when Harry met Sally is the "I'll have what she's having" orgasm moment in Katz's Deli, but. It's just, it's so clever, and so much of the cleverness is in the writing, the specificity of the jokes, um, how actually, like, heartfelt it is. Um, And of course, you know, the performances are amazing. I'm not, like, the biggest Billy Crystal fan, although I do love City Slickers. Is Billy Crystal hot in this movie? Um, he's not hot, but he, there is that image of him in, like, the chunky cabled-it sweater that always gets tweeted, like, in the fall, um, you know, because it's very autumnal. It's, well, when Harry Met Sally is a very, well, it's not a Thanksgiving movie, but it's a very autumnal movie because the main action of the movie kind of takes place from, like, summer to New Year's Eve, which is when the movie ends, so it's su- it's super autumn in New York, which I love. Which also, I mean, we'll get to You've Got Mail later, I think. But You've Got Mail also has a, a, a very big autumnal quality to it. Although I think it's more of a spring movie. Are all of her movies autumn movies? Nah, honestly, are they? anything's a Thanksgiving movie to you? Um, You're always just like, it's a Thanksgiving movie. <laughs> I mean, Sleepless in Seattle, I guess is a little more wintry maybe it's a, li- it's a little more winter i actually have only seen that movie once um but yeah i oh gosh i i feel like i want to be nora efron <laughs> is that like something that do ever does every writer want to be nora efron it feels like very natural to like want 
the trajectory and the success and the kind of cool girl factor that she had. Like, it's... I think so. I think a lot of our friends who are writers are aiming for that kind of trajectory because, you know, the I, I think not knowing a lot about her life, I would imagine that a, a big part of what launched her was so the second movie she ever wrote was Heartburn, which was adapted from her novel of, of, of the same name, which was like a sort of autofiction novel based on her own divorce when I think her husband cheated on her. Um, I recently gifted the novel to my grandma for her birthday. Um, Maybe I should read it too. And she and I can have a little book club moment, but it does feel like so many of our friends who are writers, so many people of our generation, especially people who come from journalism, that is how they launch their careers. They write memoirs or they write sort of autofiction novels and then maybe those get like adapted or like get like you know huge like buzzy you know internet success and then from there they go on and either like write more novels or move into tv and film um and you know that is kind of the Nora Ephron path it really is especially when you're a nepo baby um i God, I wish my parents were screenwriters. That would have been so much easier, right? Do you think... Okay, let's let's answer the question of when Harry met Sally. Do you think oh, women right. and men can be friends? <laughs> I mean, she also didn't... I, she also didn't take I, non-binary people into account in this. Yeah. When I was a man, we were friends. <laughs> That's true. Um, I feel like... Uh, um, I, I, honestly, I'm literally, I'm literally assessing the question. I'm literally assessing the question. Well, um, no, it's a very, it's I, obviously I, a question from, you know, yes. uh, the the gaze of the heteropatriarchy. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Wait, what do you mean by that? Because I'm like trying to evaluate it from like a heterosexual person in the 90s perspective. Like, can Well, not remember? 90s. This was in, this was 19, well, yeah, it was 1989. So really okay, the late 80s. 90s. So yes, if you're thinking about, in, oh. if you're a straight woman in the 80s, can women and men be friends? I guess is like a more real question. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. From the lens of today, like... Obviously, yes. But as Phoebe just said in the chat, why would you be friends with a man? <laughs> she spilled. You know, it's funny because like Nora Ephron was like a, a bit of a quote unquote feminist icon. And I and you do feel like feminism imbued in her work, especially in like a line like that. Can heterosexual men and women be, women be friends? I honestly can't think of a single example. Well, I think the thing is that straight guys are always trying to fuck literally everyone, every woman around them. So maybe from the woman's perspective, um, how, I, th- how is her work feminist? Her, her, she always writes these strong characters, these strong women characters that don't give a fuck. Is no, that but feminism? Th- um, I'm not talking about. I don't think she was um, acclaimed as a feminist because of her um, screenwriting work. I think that by the time she was writing for Esquire, so when she when she was invited to write for Esquire, which at this point in her career, she her her writing was already taking off. They were like, "What do you want to write about? You can write about anything you want," which is like an offer that like every writer would dream of from the editor in chief of Esquire. And she was like, "I want to write about women," and so she spent the whole time writing from a woman's perspective about women for men in a way that I think is like kind of profound and 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 her angle like when she was um 
when she was on this like cusp of like whatever wave of feminism was happening at this time with like glorious with, with Gloria Steinem literally like she was like one of Gloria Steinem's peers um, I think she felt like feminist discourse at the time was like so unfun, right? She was like, no one is like willing to self-critique. No one's having any fun with it. No one is being honest. Like no one is like kind of, no one's taking it there. Like I'm going to take it there with feminist writing. And I think that her bluntness and her willingness to say, like, yeah, like, I, like, what's a, a stupid example is, like, she wrote this, like, this this story about breasts and how women always want their breasts to be bigger and, like, what's in, what, what how, how, um, how, yes, exactly, exactly, as we pull out our tits, like, and, and she would write about, like, oh, yeah, like, I want my breasts to be bigger, isn't, and does that ma- not make me a feminist, and, like, why are women so insecure about her breasts? She was writing about insecurities a lot of the time. I think you see that in her films i think i think you see that in her essays it's like kind of in her personality she's not afraid to self-deprecate and to acknowledge her shortcomings and to and to say like yeah like you know i want x y and z that might be superficial but this is what i want and i think that at the time especially when you're in the middle of movement work you don't really want to acknowledge all your flaws along with it you don't want to add that kind of nuance and she did right she was like this is everything else we're bringing to feminism. Um, I think, I, I honestly, like, that's just my guess. You you asked you ask the question, and I think that's kind of how I understood it. I wonder what Nora Ephron's <laughs> thoughts on trans women I think were. it's better if we don't know. <laughs> I kind of... <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of thinking she might be in, in the Joanne Rowling <laughs> no! side of things. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Could just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
you know, moving forward in her career, the next big film and probably the thing that put her on the map as as a filmmaker mm-hmm. as well as a writer um, was Sleepless in Seattle, which probably for most people is like the romantic comedy. Like I think when you talk about the lexicon of romantic comedies, Sleepless in Seattle looms larger than any. Um, although for me, I, I don't think it would even be in my top five. Maybe not in my top ten. What? Top ten Nora Ephron movies? No, I'm talking top ten romantic comedies. Oh, I was talking about Nora Ephron movies. Yeah, it would not be in my actual rom-com ranking. You know, Sleepless in Seattle is a great movie. I love that Rosie O'Donnell's in it. Um, for anyone who, you know, has never seen it, it's about... Um, this little boy who, like, calls into a radio show looking for, um, a, a woman for his dad, and Meg Ryan hears it. <laughs> looking and for a woman for his dad. She and Tom Hanks <laughs> fall in love somehow, and then meet on the Empire State <laughs> Building at the end of it. It's, it's, um, Honestly, it's a weird Sorry, movie. this is the only thing I'm contributing to the conversation. You want Tom Hanks' load in this movie, right? Like, this is one where you are a Tom Hanks. Um, not, not in this movie. The movie that I want Tom Hanks' load in <laughs> is Splash. One of the, f- wait! Which, 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 for, for Like a Virgin, yes. for Like a Virgin lore, Splash was... One of the things that made us want to do this podcast, and we recorded yes! a test episode talking we about did. Splash, because what, uh, we went on we went on a vacation to Joshua Tree, but it actually was sort of like a retreat to like basically the work podcast. on the the I, the deck of this podcast and an excuse for us to write it off. Yes, and Splash is one of my favorite movies. Um, one of my favorite right. rom-coms. And, and, and Nora Ephron famously wrote and directed Splash. Well, you know, we're, we, Nora Ephron is the, the seed of this episode, but it's going <laughs> into a beautiful garden that is more generally about rom-coms. And Splash is a great romantic comedy starring Daryl Hannah and a young, hot Tom Hanks whose load I don't I remember, if I, rem- I remember his butt. I remember you pointing out his butt and being like, Look at his butt. And I was like, whoa, I actually did not expect that from Tom Hanks. It was a bit of a dump truck. It's a, it's a very horny movie. They, he and Daryl Hannah yes, have a lot of sex Yes, that's something that's so baffling. He loves having sex with her so much that he locks her inside of, like, a hotel room or something like that. Doesn't he lock the mermaid inside a room? <laughs> he, like, literally holds her captive so he can fuck her. But that's not how it's... It's 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 there's some weird there's some weird vibes in the movie. Um, Let's just I, say I, that. Also, also, it stars a young Eugene Levy. No, Eugene movie. Levy would get you his nose. <laughs> it's about the nose. Mm, yeah. Um. Wait. Okay. That's some pretty good lore. Actually, like, was it? I think the first things we ever watched were Splash, and then I, I think and the Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes, Mrs. Oh my we god. We need to do a Mrs. Doubtfire episode because you know it's one of my favorite films. Okay, okay, okay. Are there any other Nora Ephron movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, there are. There. Fast forwarding a little further in, in Nora Ephron's career um, is You've Got Mail in 1998, my favorite of her films, and definitely up in my 
like top five romantic comedies of all time. Um, it is a, for anyone who doesn't know, and if you have never seen You've Got Mail, I like literally can't believe you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. Um, it's It stars Meg Ryan as the owner of a charming little children's bookstore on the Upper West Side, and she is um, sort of priced out of the neighborhood because a big bookstore... Um, like a sort of Barnes and Noble type store that is run by Tom Hanks moves into the neighborhood and they are secretly internet pen pals and fall in love. And it is just the sweetest, funniest, but also kind of mean, like most New York and like specifically Upper West Side ass romantic comedy Oh yeah, um, it's so '90s, but like turn of the century '90s because of the AOL of it all. Parker Posey is in it, um, and she's incredible. Greg Kinnear is in it; he's Meg Ryan's boyfriend at the beginning. Mm. Dave Chappelle is in it. Dave um, Chappelle, I forgot of boo hiss. Um, this movie like captures like um, this ex- this extremely specific era of at least uh, our lives, like this generation's lives, where the, the internet felt so new and scary and thrilling. Like, like this, sending your first emails, like, that was such a... Do you remember what that felt like? Do you have any idea what your first email was or, like, what your first instant no. message was? No, but I do have a lot... I have so many memories of logging on to AOL specifically to read fan fiction. Yeah. Um, you know, this was so... Um, this was such an important time for the formation of almost everything about my identity. <laughs> One of the, f- the few things that I can remember are... I, re- I remember having a girlfriend at the time. Her name was Katie Crow. I was in seventh grade. I remember chatting with her over email and writing, like, cute emails to each other back and forth. And I remember taking forever to decide the font and font color of my, you know, and the background color, which was usually a cloudy rainbow, which, yeah, I think that, that like, that was the thing that, like, I obsessed over. I was like, what the fuck is the font? God, and this was... was the this was the time of you know children our little Gen Z listeners if you exist you know this was the time when you had one family computer that yeah. everyone shared yeah. mine was our our house that we lived in had an enclosed patio in the back and that's where the computer was and I would go out there like early in the morning so I could log on to AOL <laughs> and 10 minutes later once I was finally online after the um then I would you know read my little Buffy fan fictions and stuff um and chat with probably like you know, 50-year-old men who wanted to murder me. And you were just a little girl. I was just uh, a little, quote-unquote, girl. Uh, um, yeah, I... Oh, God. I, I just... I, I miss when the internet was, like, at this cusp. Um, I, I we, Do we can, you? It I took do. so long to do anything. Yeah, but, like, our brains were better. Our brains were like Nora Ephron. That's honestly, like, when I was... <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> exactly. No, truly, like, our the internet ruined our brains. That I think, honestly, there's something a little nostalgic about... 
it's so weird to be nostalgic for a, a period that like we lived through, but there is a nostalgia to the kind of cinematic universe of Nora Ephron's characters and this kind of pre-internet purity that, oh God, yeah, I'm just jealous of. I like, I miss that. I miss when writers didn't have to write about the internet. Like now that we're in this like era of like work, like we can't really have any of our conversations without acknowledging how social media is influencing them or maybe like the, it's like about social media or like about some viral trend in some way and I don't know I, I miss this like kind of cuspel analog time um, it is nice to think about the internet being something that you had to work f- that you had to work for that you had to put in effort to access mm-hmm. and that was actually a barrier of entry for a lot of people and I'm sure at the time this movie came out um this was very much a novelty um, using the internet in this way. And like, it makes sense that these, the, the leads of this film were like coastal elites, like, you know, sort of like intellectual, like book people um, who were falling in love online. Um, But also, I don't know, like the idea of love letters and like, um, you know, mistaken identities is so romantic, but I do think this film is problematic. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the because, enemies to lovers trope. I mean, it's enemies to lovers, but then you know, halfway the whole twist is that halfway through the film, Tom Hanks realizes that it's Meg Ryan who he's talking to online yeah. because they're supposed to meet IRL. Fully catfish. Um, and then he kind of like uses his knowledge of her to get her to fall in love with him IRL and then you know by the by the end of the film when they actually do meet she says I wanted it to be you which like is a it's a great line it's so romantic but also like he fully manipulated her you know the thing is like if she didn't say that line I wanted it to be you the movie would have such a different ending like it would be I think it would be easy to assume that she, like, hated his guts and she's like, you're dead to me forever. You know, like, you needed her to say that in order to have that little, I guess, lynching. Well, she was clearly in love with him by the end, but he Mm -hmm. was using in their actual lives, once they started spending Mm -hmm. time together, he was using the information he got from her when they were anonymous to get her to fall in love with him. Maybe she knew it was him the whole time and she, she wanted him to know these things. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so either. I was going to say um, this, again, with this movie, like, it feels like, oh, God. I, I feel, I, I don't want to be redundant because, like, in our Julie Roberts episode, we were like, they don't make movie stars like this anymore. But, like, I do feel like, they, like there, there aren't writers like Nora Ephron anymore. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, she belongs to this kind of internet cusp generation of writers that like we'll just I don't know I don't we'll never we don't get writers that are so magnanimous and on every single talk show the way Nora Ephron was on every single talk show and like was actually famous during her time Um, well I I think also what it is is that the um the romantic comedy is kind of dead. Um, this Nora Ephron's, um, yeah. you know, heyday was the golden age of the romantic comedy, which I would I would argue was really the nineties. Um, 
when we were like post sexual liberation and pre, you know, jaded internet era. Um, and she, you know, she was the perfect writer for her time. Like yeah. there are these once in a generation people, I think. And of course, like, you know, she was speaking for a very privileged, white, cis, hetero, like elite idea of life and love, of course. But, you know, it it clearly did captivate a nation and the world in a way. And so, yeah, I think she she was, as Hannah Horvath wanted to be, the voice of her generation, or at least a voice of a generation. Uh Uh-huh. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Her last films were 2005's Bewitched remake, which God. I actually watched kind of recently, I think, on a plane. Really? And it is, yeah, I mean, it's awful. It's it's so bad. It's but, bad, right? But it's still, I mean, it still has, like, some charming dialogue, and Nicole Kidman's charming. Will Ferrell is just, like, woefully miscast. Kristen Chenoweth's in it, and, like, she's great, of course. Michael Caine's fab, but... Did you like... You didn't like the movie. Is there anything else you remember about it? It's just, like, a bad framing of the movie, Mm -hmm. I think. Because it's very meta, right? Yeah, it's about uh, an actor, like, a a sort of, like, washed-up actor who's making... uh, a reboot TV show of Bewitched. And it did kind of predict reboot culture. Yeah. Um, but then an actual witch gets cast in it and right. they fall in love and <laughs> it's just like stupid. Um, but then her last film was Julia and Julia, which Ooh. is, I think, an incredible movie if you only watch the the, oh. the Julia Child scenes. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I've seen the YouTube version called And Julia. That is the movie with Amy Adams cut out of it. <laughs> it's much better and totally watchable. 
And Meryl Streep is incredible as Julia Child. Okay, it should be said Meryl Streep with Stanley Tucci. With Stanley Tucci, very important. Horny, and I love how I love how how into each other they are. Like yes. they fuck. They want to ravish each other. It's so I, cute. I don't understand how there's that HBO Max Julia Child show that that literally in the midst of everything going on at HBO got renewed for a second season when we already have kind of the definitive portrayal of Julia Child yeah. in media by Didn't Meryl Streep. Yeah, yeah. It it, it really is um it doesn't it doesn't quite make sense, but you know, reboot culture, it's going to happen. Well, okay, I want to talk more about romantic comedies in general and like where Nora Ephron fits into it because you know as we've said she does kind of she's the 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 part of the romantic comedy landscape that's like very you know like intellectual a little jaded a little cynical very New York very you know like coastal elite I would say like you have fucking Nancy Myers on one end of the spectrum you know she's making I would say like more west coast Romantic comedies, like big, big white kitchen comedies. Yes, big white Um, kitchen. And then Nora Ephron is like East Coast. You know, she's making small, you know, exposed brick kitchen movies. Okay, yes, very distinct. Um, Still still very nice kitchen, still very expensive kitchen. Very expensive. Um, So they're the two coasts. Um, But, you know, like, like their characters, I think there's like a shared cinematic universe that their characters live in. I think so. I mean, (laughs) I'll... I, I frequently kind of, like, lump Nancy and Nora, like, in in the same kind of category in my brain, even though their writing is so different. I am, like, such a Nancy Myers stan. Like, as I said on the pod before, I love, like, you know, m- movies about, like, white women in crisis, like, wealthy women who are going through it emotionally. Um, but, yeah, no, they're, they're... I think West Coast, East Coast is, like, the perfect assessment. Like, there is something... Nancy Myers' movies are just... Sorry, like so much more shallow. Like they don't, they don't have the voice. They that are much more that shallow. Nora has. Like they're that Nora is it, it, at the end of the day, the thing that has stuck with Nora through the entirety of her career, and something that we remember her for, even if we don't say it explicitly, was like her voice. Like she had a very specific yeah. The voice right, that, the writing is better. Nancy does that. Nancy doesn't. You know. Um, but God, the thing about Nancy is she was like having so much fun. I want to write a Nancy I, Myers movie, not a Nora Ephron movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wish, I do wish that Julia Roberts had been in um, an, a Nora Ephron movie at some yeah. point. But but Meg Ryan is uh, is the Nora Ephron protagonist. Like, that yeah. is the kind of woman she was writing. I don't know, just like a white blonde woman with short hair. Um, with so. with anxious speaking patterns. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um I I am I love Meg Ryan. She was certainly a mother at some at, at one point in the culture. Um and I will always love her especially for being the voice of Anastasia in the animated film Anastasia. <laughs> oh god, I forgot about that. And that movie was stacked. It had Kristen Dunst, it had um John Cusack, uh Angela Lan- No, no, no. Bernadette Peters. It- Oh yeah, and Angela, Angela Lansbury and Angela Lansbury. Um, that Kelsey Grammer, um, yeah, Meg Ryan. Wait, there was another really. Oh, oh. Hank Azaria. 
Yes, um, and then who was who was Rasputin? It was like Christopher something. Christopher Lloyd. Okay. Um, d- have we already talked about how Ras? We need. Should we do an Anastasia episode? Should we do? Should we do a Russian dynasty episode? <laughs> um. Sure. Have you ever read? I the, think like- we could do. We could do like a non-Disney animated movie. Um, episode because. I think Anastasia is one of those movies that everyone thinks is a Disney movie, but it's not. And there were uh, quite a few of those in the 90s when other studios started to get in on the animation game that Disney had, like, sort of created a monopoly around. Have you have you ever read about when Rasputin died? Yes. It, like, how? Like, how he died? Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. He died like he like got shot like three times and then was like beaten to death and stabbed and thrown in a river, like a frozen mm-hmm. river. And he That's died. how I want to go. Yes, and it, and it didn't in his body like, That's what it, I'm going to do to you. <laughs> but his body, they found that he died from like fr- like freezing. Like he didn't die from the gunshot wounds or stabbings or anything. It's crazy. It's also crazy that when they adapted Anastasia into a Broadway musical that I never saw, they cut Rasputin from it. And his song is one of the best songs in the film. I wonder why. Is it like too dark or was it just it's too I think because they they didn't want it to be magical. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Which is boring as fuck. Um Oh, remember you? Well, you watched season five of The Crown, the the episode about the Romanovs, where they show them all getting executed at the beginning. Oh my! That episode is so gaggy. They really popped. It is off. pretty gaggy. Yeah, they they popped a couple bullets off into the Romanovs. <laughs> oh my god, this is so sad. Uh, Meg Ryan, love love her. Um, who are the other like rom com divas? Obviously, Julia Roberts. We've talked about. Um, Jennifer Lopez, Monster in Law is one of my favorite rom coms. Would definitely be on the like top ten list. It's Queen Latifah is a rom com diva. Last Holiday she is she really is. Although has was she did she do any other rom? Oh, Renee Zellweger, Bridget Jones. I've never seen Bridget Jones' Diary. What? Yes, I've, Fran. Never, I've never seen a single Fran. one. Fran! Oh I, my god! I have it, I have it. What is it. wrong with you? Are, are those Christmas movies? Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. kind of. Maybe we'll... I always, well, I, I always watch Bridget Jones' Diary in the period between Christmas and New Year's because it starts on New Year's Day. So, mate, we'll do that. You know, at the end of this year. I can't believe you've never seen Bridget Jones' Diary. Man, it's going to rock your world. Okay, we'll do an episode on it. Let's do it. Done. And it's going to be, and you're going to be, feel insane when they talk about how fat she is when she's like, not fat. Wait, there are jokes about how fat she is? Yeah, that was the whole thing with Bridget Jones. The whole thing with Bridget Jones that she's like fat and she's like, you know. She weighs like 115 pounds. <laughs> God. There's been so much discussion about how kind of romantic comedies are a lost art. And we did we did touch on this, you know, in the Julia Roberts episode, which definitely go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it. But the era of rom-coms was also the era of movie stars. And that's mm-hmm. what a lot of these films were sold on um, by having these movie stars in the starring roles so that it almost didn't matter what the movies were about. People were coming to them to see 
these stars fall in love over and over again. And we kind of don't have that anymore. And now rom-coms really are the main place they exist is on streaming. Mm. And so, you know, there's maybe something to be said about how, you know, streaming could create this like renaissance of rom-coms because they are, you know, like cheaper to make than big budget blockbusters than like Marvel movies. Yeah. And they might just not ever reach the same, you know, heights of popularity and like universal appeal that the rom-coms of of yesteryear of ye old hee-haw times. Ye old hee-haw times. I I was going to say, yeah, I think that a lot of the reason that we don't have like the volume of rom-coms that we used to is has a lot to do with streaming and with like kind of the Marvel stuff, just as you said. Like, I think that because the blockbuster movies are all actions now, it's almost like these got scooted out. Um, maybe because the movies of the 2000s, like the late 2000s are like bad. Like the, the rom- romantic comedies were like not on the level. It's just, you feel like nostalgic for like what a rom-com used to feel like before social media and before like millennials started making things like love Simon and like Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. Like, do you remember yeah. like, or, or a 500 days of summer, like that, that actually feels like a, well, those are kind of romantic dramedies almost. You think they don't count as, you don't think 500 days of summer, that's a rom-com, isn't it? Maybe um, not. Well, there really, there really is a renaissance of romance, but it's happening in books. Mm. Um, you know, like there is a huge market now on book talk for romance. You know, we've talked about like all the those books with like vector cover art of little cartoon people. Like that's the the biggest part of the book industry outside of like you know huge sci fi novels is romance and a lot of them are being adapted into tv shows and movies but it is books more than anything um that are selling you know you look at like the like colleen hoover which i've never read a colleen hoover book but um the seven husbands of evelyn hugo bitch um taylor jenkins reed emily henry whose whose books i like although i've heard that her book that's coming out this year is not very good um but these books are like are like romance first and then some of them are funny and then some of them are dramatic and Mm. it's more about the romance of it all than the comedy of it and i think what what was so amazing about Nora efron's work and and i think why she maybe even heralded the age of romantic comedies is that the emphasis i think was always on the comedy and the characters and the romance was really the container for that hmm that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's just like, it's like the framing is kind of what made, I think the framing and the lens on it is like what made it so great. I, I would like to see more queer rom-coms specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because like, you know, we, we're all kind of tired of the like sad gay period stuff. And and like, you know, I also have talk a lot about how I like, you know, gay historical erotica, but those are usually not... <laughs> comedies although sometimes they're funny but they're not specifically comedies i also like wouldn't even really call red white and royal blue a rom-com what no i would call it a romance novel i would call it a young adult i would not young i would call it a new adult because that's like the the categorization that exists now i would call it a new adult queer romance 
Um, it is funny, uh, but it's not a comedy. Wait, Phoebe dropped in the chat. Um, happiest season as uh, a rom. Uh, did you watch? Did we? Did we ever talk about that? Yeah, I watched it when it came out. I rewatched it this past Christmas what? season. Well, I, I, um, I, I was at my best friend Ryan's mom's for Christmas, and she had never seen it, so we, we oh, watched okay. it on Christmas Day. Okay, um, that movie's you know, bad. I think it's, I think it's good. No, I think it's a cute movie that that has problems, but the problems are mostly that. One of the you romantic know, leads is irredeemable. Is is irredeemable, <laughs> and Kristen Stewart should end up with Aubrey Plaza. Yes. But I still think it's a it's a well made movie with some really good performances. Yeah, it is a well made movie, and it does have good performances. That's very diplomatic. The, the canon of queer rom coms is so small that you know we kind of have to take what we can get yeah. and like. I do hope we get to the point where that's not true. I'm tr- I'm putting in the work now yes. to make sure that you know the the genre is expanded. Like yes. I as as I have alluded to many times, I'm in the process of writing a queer romantic comedy and you know look out for that whenever I finish it plus probably <laughs> 2 years. Um, <laughs> you you know you you've consumed a lot of rom-coms as market research for this book. Did you learn anything new? About- well, not necessarily like market research more I want to write something that is like aware of the genre it exists in yes Um, yes. and like I think tropes are very interesting and like it's fun to riff off of them and to acknowledge them and be aware of them Um, did you learn anything new in this in this uh, exploratory period about rom-coms specifically, anything you noticed? Well, yeah, I think what I learned is that, you know, I kind of had this revelation last summer, which is that I was, I w- was dealing a lot with um, worrying that what I was writing was too, w- w- thinking that I needed to make the story I was writing more, um, like, general and, like, accessible to a wider audience. Mm. And what I kind of realized was that, no, in making my story as specific as possible, that is what would make people want to read it. Mm. Um, And so that's, I think, what I learned from watching a lot of rom-coms and also just consuming a lot of queer media and kind of bros in particular led bros, to that revelation. Bros, Oh my God. A Speaking rom-com. of queer rom-coms, but rom- we are not going to, we are not going to speak about bros. No, we don't. We Not again. No, there's nothing left that needs to be said about bros. But Taka, do you think bros is going to ruin it for the future of all gay rom-coms? Do you think that nothing will get so. green light so. anymore? Okay, good. Because we need to make some movies, Rose. Yes. Let's um, go. Who would you want to play your love interest in a rom-com? Adam Driver. Definitely. For 100% sure, Adam Driver. Adam Driver in a trans-amorous relationship. That's all I've ever wanted. <laughs> what okay. about you? Um, Kiki Palmer. Kiki Palmer! Stanley Tucci. <laughs> uh, Kiki Palmer and Stanley Tucci, and we, like, form a polycule. Yeah, you're in a poly... (laughs) You're in a throuple with Kiki Palmer. We're in a a May-December polycule. (laughs) I'm now trying to imagine... We're in a March-May-December polycule. (laughs) Throuple. I'm trying to imagine Stanley Tucci and Kiki Palmer. 
We need a Thruple rom-com. Although I I absolutely support polyamory and Thruples. I don't particularly like reading about them. Because, like, about I'm Thruples? very... Uh, yeah, I'm very much drawn to, like, two people being in love and, like, but, but that's also just kind of the way I was socialized. So I'm trying to unlearn that. There should be thruple representation in rom-coms. Like, we have never had a polycule rom-com. We've never had a well, what I always what I always wondered about the favorite is why didn't they just, why weren't they just in a thruple? There are a lot of movies that are like, why aren't they just in a thruple? I mean, My Best Friend's Wedding. Why aren't they just in a thruple? That's true, because I do think that Julia and Cameron had a vibe. Yeah. But I exactly. always think ev- I always think everyone has a vibe in, in everything I watch. Famously do think everything has a vibe. Um, and you know what? I think Nora Ephron would agree with me. I honestly, Nora Ephron would be so problematic about polyamorous relationships if she were like, <laughs> Nora right, Ephron would be today. problematic about a lot of things. Yeah, thank God she like died before the internet like really became a thing. Don't, <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> That's so horrible. Is it Nora, really? Nora, we love you. We do love you, but you probably would have hated the internet too. I mean, you kind of did. Well, anyways, I was going to say, there needs to be poly representation in romances. Like, how come we have not had like a poly Disney princess? Like we need po- we need Polly Nora Ephron movies. We need um yeah, we need like We're not we have not reached the representation part of the conversation. No, no, we have. We were 50 minutes representation in. Representation doesn't matter. <laughs> representation matters and we need polycules on screen. That- we need we need a Disney princess who felches. <laughs> I want to see a rom-com with felching in it. That's when that's when I'll know that we you, really have reached um, a, a queer utopia in media. Will you remind me what felching is? I feel like I oh, always felching know is and when I you eat know. your own cum out of someone after you've come in them. The How did you not know my, that? The virgin's crunching my jaw. Is the woman was too stunned to speak. Have you never felched someone or been felched? No, no, no. Really. Oh well, you don't let you don't love come the way I love come. No, Phoebe, Phoebe has Phoebe has felched. I really, I really wish, I really wish, I really wish that I was on that level. Honestly, I, I, I honestly feel ashamed. I wish I had felched. Well, wish- Nora Ephron, I hope that before you left us, you learned what felching is, and I think you, R.I.P. Nora Ephron, you would have loved felching. <laughs> You can follow our burner account at likeavirgin42069. We will be keeping you updated on an extra special announcement on the coming episodes. Um, stay tuned for more surprises. Follow me at Francisco and follow Rose Damu at Rose Damu anywhere you want on social. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. And Like a Virgin is an iHeartRadio production. Our producer is Phoebe Unter with support from Lindsay Hoffman and Nikki Etor. Until next week, see you later, virgins. Bye! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.